0: This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Vic and you're listening to another episode here on the Mindful Experiment as... Each week, we dive into someone to interview, to share some wealth of their knowledge, what's their gift, what they're passionate about, and so much more. Um, This interview was a great one. I enjoyed it. It's a lot of what I've talked about in the podcast just with myself. I'm big on, you know, you change your story, you change your life. And Rich Curtis, he wrote the book on this. And it's one of those things of how powerful. The stories we share that we constantly repeat how it manifests our reality and gives us that experience. In my book uh, The Rediscover Your Greatness, I discuss deeply in about the words are fabric to your reality and the words you choose when you line it up into a story when it up becomes your experience. And in Rich and I, we dive deep into this. So I, I'm excited to share this interview with you. It's been a it's been a minute of getting it out there, but now the time has come. So for those who may not know who Rich Curtis is, Rich Curtis is and always has been a guide. He spent over a decade as a raft and mountain guide on the rivers and mountains of the American West, and a real estate entrepreneur. Now he spends his time guiding people through life's inflection points as a best-selling author, story expert, and a success coach. Rich guides, coaches, writes, and speaks to help entrepreneurs, CEOs, adventurers, and go-getters rewrite their stories, get unstuck, and live their dreams. As a passionate student of the power of story, neuroscience, positive psychology, and behavioral psychology, Rich believes in a world where people are invested in the process of being better tomorrow than they are today. His life work includes his book, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, have been about helping people get there. Outside of work, Rich is a dedicated father of two, husband, traveler, and outdoor adventurer. Sit back, relax, enjoy this episode because I know I did interviewing Rich. So here is Rich. Rich Curtis. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Vic. I'm
1: excited. I, 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 love, the, uh, I love the name and the concept, the mindful experiment. Mindfulness is a, a big part of my research and work as well. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited to be here chatting with you today.
0: I'm looking to dive in. Just when you're talking about brain stuff and all those other things, I'm like, ah, yes, I can go into this combo. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some I can geek out with you. So I'm looking forward to doing this. <laughs> right um, on. So before I do, before we get into all that stuff, um, I would, I would people, my listeners always know that I always like to ask the first question, get right into things. What is your story, your path, how you got into what you're doing today?
1: Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I think like everybody's, it's a meandering path. I can tell you I never set out to be, um, a self-help author. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I've always been a guide my whole life. Um, so I spent about a decade as a rat as, you know, a formal paid raft and mountain guide before that, even starting at 14, I was Um, guiding people and teaching them how to rock climb and how to backpack. Um, And so that was sort of my passion for a long, long time. Then when I became a family man, I I did about, you know, 16, 17 years in residential real estate, which I still have that business. Um, And and then this, you know, coaching evolution, coaching journey sort of started for me um, with an event that happened in 2013. You know, I think think a lot of people conceptualize their life as this sort of up and to the right hockey stick on, on the graph from like not as good when you're young to killing it when you're old. And the truth is, life is uh, you know, more a, a series of you know, hits that you take and recover from and have to get back on track and point where you want to go and get there. So um, I took one of those hits in 2013. My mom um, died sort of suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, and we you know, uh, from that, I spent sort of two years um, dealing with a lot of grief and a lot of depression, a lot of frustration, a lot of anger. Um, and I think you know, nobody around me really knew as men were really good at compartmentalizing that and hiding that. And so, you know, I was a, a high functioning entrepreneur. I was the best dad I knew how to be. I, I think I was kind of a crappy husband. I was probably a little uh, tough to deal with for those two years. My, my wife's a saint and I give her a lot of credit for helping me through that. But for the most part, you know, if we went out and had a drink or had dinner, you wouldn't have known how bad I was suffering. And, and even to myself, I couldn't really uh, sort of admit that I was depressed and suffering. Um, and this was all driven by this really bad story I had from the the day that my mom died, um, and it was kind of compounded from some other bad stories I, I was carrying around from my guiding days, like you know nobody dies on my watch kind of thing. Where we're, we're sort of gifted that story, I think, at birth as men, like you know we, I got this, I'm a tough guy, and nobody dies on my watch. And then you know being the youngest of five Irish and Italian boys, and then being a raft and mountain guide, and having you know heart attacks and all, and you know cracked heads and cracked ribs, and always bringing those people home safe, sort of set me up, uh, uniquely poorly to stand aside and facilitate someone's dying process. Right. We, I think in the West, we treat death as sort of this battle to fight and then you lose it. Like people even say that they lost their battle to cancer when well, they didn't lose a battle. They, they died, which is part of our natural evolution, but the language we have around it and, and the stories I had, uh, made it really hard to, um, stand there and just watch my mom pass away because she had a, a DNR order. Um, which if you don't know what that means, it means if we know that this is only going one way, you're going to die today, then we just are going to do nothing and let that, pr- that process take its course. You don't want us to, to work on you and pound on you and do CPR and, and, and drag this out, right? So she had a DNR order. So we literally had to s- just sort of sit there and, and watch her die for about 14 hours. So fast forward two years from this, um, I had this uh, this huge epiphany of this story that had been causing me to suffer. And I think some people have their epiphanies like, you know, you know with a religious leader at church or out in the mountains or, you know, <laughs> these days on the slopes of the Andes taking ayahuasca and staring at the stars. Right. But uh, my epiphany came circling the Costco parking lot, um, having a fight with my brother, my older brother, screaming at him over the phone. Uh, and it culminated. I'd been doing it long enough and, and, uh, zoned out so much into this argument with my brother that apparently a security guard had started to follow me. So this guy in a golf cart who's circling behind me, I didn't even know was there. And I, I screamed into the phone at one point at my brother, uh, I'm failing you. I'm failing Ann. That's my wife. And we failed mom. You know, we just stood there and watched her die. She fought for all five of us every day of her life. And we just stood there and watched her die and did nothing. And I hit the brakes in the car. A little security guard guy, poor dude, almost slammed me right in the back of my truck. Um, and he gets out. He's actually knocking you know, with, his, with his knuckles on my window. And I'm standing there, what, you know, or sitting there, pardon me, white knuckled on the steering wheel, staring forward, not even noticing that guy, completely stunned by that story. Uh, because that story was, it was clear in an instant that that was the source of all my suffering, that that was what was causing me the pain. And I didn't know that story existed. I had never said out loud anything like that. Nobody in my family had ever, you know, even inferred that we failed mom or, or didn't fight for her even late night, you know, two in the morning on the couch with a whiskey in my hand, never even thought that. Right. I, I had no idea. That wasn't part of my conscious reality, but there it was a story that was you know, causing me a ton of suffering and a ton of pain. And, and so from that, um, you know, my basic wiring is just, is, and especially from being a, a guy in the wilderness, is there's always a solution, right? You, you take people out in the woods. You can't just say, well, things went wrong. Sorry, we'll sit here and die. You, you, you just keep fighting. You find a solution. So I was kind of, you know, how do I fix this? What's what's the solution here? And so I asked myself a couple of questions. Is this story true, right? And even if it's true, is it serving me? Which is, you know, a more important question. And then I looked back at that day and the the truth of it was that story wasn't true. It wasn't the only version of of what happened that day. And definitely it wasn't serving me. It was, it was, it was, you know, killing me, causing me a ton of pain and suffering. So I was able to look back at the story of that day and and say, well, at four in the morning, my dad asked me and my brother to bring the DNR to the hospital. And I did that, even though I knew what that meant, you know, from, from all my years in wilderness medicine. And I asked her to verbally rescind it in the hospital because you can do that. And, uh, but she said, no, she wanted it to stand. And I handed it over to the doc. He almost ripped it when he pulled it from my hand because I didn't want to give it to him that bad. But I, but I gave it to him, even though I knew what that meant you know, for, for the day. My mom was a devout Catholic. Um, you, you know Your, I, your last name is Monzo. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've been at least exposed to, to Catholicism. We were a half Catholic, um, I mean, all Catholic, half Irish, half Italian family. And so we got the priest in to do the final sacraments for her, which is something that didn't mean a lot to me, but did mean a lot to her. Later in the day, uh, my fa- we, my we, one of my brothers couldn't get there. He he had been out um, celebrating marriage equality the night before. And he had turned off his cell phone he went to bed. And uh, he was in his, his secured apartment building in San Francisco, we couldn't get to him. So I had a friend go and literally break into his apartment building and roused him out of bed so we would get to the hospital in time. So mom had all five of her boys there. Um, by, by the end, we'd called so much family. Uh, by the moment of her death, there were 18 people in the room. Each one of them had a hand on her in some way. Um, My dad couldn't get into the hospital bed with her. They had this amazing lifelong relationship, um, really admirable marriage. Uh, They were very like disgustingly, you know, touchy feely, cuddly parents, you know, the kind that gross you out when you're a kid and he couldn't, he couldn't get in the bed with her. So, and I fiddled with the hospital bed rail. I couldn't figure it out. So I got the nurse to get the bed rail down so dad could get into the bed with her. And then my dad said, that the mask, it's freaking her out. She hates those things. So I asked the, the ICU nurse, said, what's that mask doing, that oxygen mask? She said, well, it'll extend her life maybe 10 minutes. And I said, well, get that mask off her face then. And so when I looked back at that day with the perspective of the story that was making me suffer, I was able to see that I actually fought for my mom in every way I could while respecting her right to die her way. So when you look at those two stories, um, we failed mom. We just, we did nothing. We just stood there and watched her die that is functionally a true statement about that day if you want it to be but i fought for my mom in every way i could while respecting her right to die her way is also very very true about what happened that day one of those stories was ruining my life and causing me a ton of suffering the other one set me free and then once i did that once i felt the freedom and lightness that came from really rewriting and implanting that new story in my subconscious uh, I said, I got to figure out if if this is real. Is this just some hooey, we, you know, crud that worked for me, or is, is there some real underpinnings to this? So I went on a two-year deep dive into the neuroscience of story and happiness and found that there's just ream after ream of scientific data and research to support the power of of narrative to change our outcomes. And so that's, that's what the book is about. Change your story, change your life. It's not uh, it's not sort of in, in the realm of like, you know, hooey, wooey, you know, look in the mirror and tell yourself you're great. It's, it's really based on uh, the neuroscience um, of story and happiness and how you can manipulate the way your brain works to give you better outcomes, to upcycle all of your outcomes. And so once you do it once, it, it sort of becomes addictive. You get hooked on any area of your life that's not working. What's my story about this? Is it true uh, even if it's true, is it serving me? Boom, boom, boom. You ask yourself those three questions, you get to work rewriting the story, and you can really change your outcomes very, very quickly. So that's, that's how I sort of came to uh, be you know, writing the book and doing this book tour and, and trying to um, share this message and change you know, as many lives as I can one story at a time, uh, because it, this just has a, a profound ability to um, very, very quickly change your outcomes in life.
0: What a story, and I and I, and I and I love the the repositioning or redirecting or course directing or shifting the mindset to you know your story, and in in having that different experience. How let let's get into the neural stuff um, of how how do stories, um, or I'll let you take this anyway. I'm just going to ask the question: How do stories? How do how do those stories that we use and that we put energy into shift our lives and shift the, the, the outcome or emotion response and all that um, when we choose one story versus another? Well, you know, th-
1: there's some really interesting language just in the way you frame the question, because I, I think once you get to the point where you're willing to admit to yourself that your stories aren't necessarily true, that you're in control of them, then you get to choose one story over another. For most of us, this is totally an unconscious activity and we've never taken the time to choose one story over another. So we are living out stories that we've written. You know, Humans are these meaning-making machines. We write stories about everything in our lives. Those stories get sort of instantly implanted in our subconscious. We, we carve these deep um, neural pathways to those stories. And then they're ours forever unless we take, take the time and effort to change them. So the ability to choose one story over another comes with the knowledge that you're in control and with taking back that control, becoming the, the architect of your own examined and intentional life. And that's what these processes are for. So before the point at which you do that, um, you're really you know sort of unconsciously living out stories that you've crafted for yourself, that society's crafted for you, that maybe parents or mentors have crafted for you, and you don't know what they are which is crazy. You have a story that um, that you know, governs everything you do. You have a story about who you are You know, as an entrepreneur, as a chiropractor, as a podcaster. If you're a dad, you have a story about who you are as a dad. If you're married, you have a story about who you are as a husband, who you are as an athlete. Um, all of those stories craft who you are and your outcomes. And you probably have never said them out loud. You probably have never written them down and looked at them and, and thought about, and maybe you have, uh, you know, uh, people who um, have been involved in the personal development in- industry often have done a version of this work, but for most people they haven't ever done that. So it'd be like getting in the car in the morning, you turn it on, the GPS kicks on, it starts giving you directions, and you just follow it. But you don't actually look at the destination. You don't actually think about where it's taking you. are just blindly following it. That's how we're we're living our lives, and we we take control of the destination um, by by taking control of these stories. And and, and the reason there. They affect us so profoundly is because uh, story actually um, reaches in and grabs us and affects us right down to the biological survival center of the brain, which is which is just wild. This part, of the research was mind blowing to me. Um, there's a woman in Southern California at UCLA, uh, Mary Helen Imerdino Yang, she's a brilliant neuroscience and education researcher. And she's found that if she tells you an inspiring story and then puts you on an fMRI machine and scans your brain, there's three different areas that light up. Um, you know, one is that the midbrain upfront, which isn't super exciting, because that does a lot of different things. Um, Another area is, it's actually two areas, the insula, it's on the left and right, which is really interesting. It controls your gut function. So when you get that tingly feeling from a story or you get that emotional kind of physical response, you feel it in your gut. That's because you have actually had the centers of your brain that control your gut function lit up and stimulated by that inspiring story. And then the final one, which is the most interesting, is that your medulla lights up, which your medulla is a little small cluster in the brain, you know, kind of at the base of the back of your head. Um, uh, this area is, you know, responsible for such inconsequential tasks as keeping you breathing when you're sleeping, keeping your blood pressure regulated, keeping your heart beating. It's the biological survival center of the brain. One of the oldest parts of the brain. Uh, and and in fact, like in action sports, if you take a hit to this part of the brain too severely, they, they can only even keep you alive on life sport for 10 or 15 minutes. It's that important. And so to me, when I think about that from an evolutionary perspective, I would think we would have built like an impenetrable firewall around that. We would protect that thing at all costs, right? I would think that the body would have tried to move that to the middle of the brain and cut off all connections to it and just protect that no matter what. But instead, all I have to do is tell you an impactful story, like the story about my mom or an inspiring story, you know, of um, someone helping someone and and I can reach right into that part of your brain and light it it up. And the fact that it's lighting up on the fMRI machine means two things. It's getting electricity, right? We're, we're basically an electric animal, uh, and it's getting blood flow, right? Which means, uh, if you really geek, geek out on the scientific level of this, that I've just reached in and altered you at the neural level in the biological survival center of your brain by telling you a story. And so if you just, if you just sit for a second with that, like a story affects you right down at the cellular level in the biological survival center of your brain. Now that Mary Helen e. Murdino Yang's conclusion from that is that our social selves and our biological selves are inextricably linked through our stories. Um, and I, I, I take that a step further to say, if these powering, uh, powerful and inspiring stories are affecting you right there at the bi- biological survival center of your brain, how much damage do you think the really terrible stories you're telling yourself do, right? Uh, so not the stories you t- you know, tell your friends out loud, but the ones you tell yourself, like I said, late, late on the late night on the couch with a whiskey in your hand, I, I'm, I suck. I'm terrible. I'm never going to be successful. I'm fat. I'm never going to have a partner. I'm never going to be, you know, good at anything. I'm a terrible athlete, all these things, you know, these stories, the, the stories we actually hold inside that we actually tell ourselves. I told my clients, if this isn't a story, you jump up on the coffee table at a cocktail party and yell to the entire room then it's a really bad story, right? And nobody's going to jump up at the coffee table and yell, I totally suck at everything, right? <laughs> so um, that's why these stories are so important and taking control of them is so important because they're affecting you like right down to the biological you know, survival center of your brain, like right, right down to your core. And so you can take control of these and story becomes a programming code for the brain. Um, and so you live most of your life and all of us are living most of our life on auto. about 80% of what you do during the day is autopilot because the brain is the biggest energy hog organ uh, that we have. So if you had to make every decision, you just sit around and have to eat as much as an an elephant to survive. So we put it on autopilot. That autopilot is controlled by these filters. The way you access the filter database is through these stories. So nothing new gets in to your brain or changes your outcomes unless you can circumvent these filters. And and the the stories are how you do that. You get in there and and you reprogram your brain using these stories.
0: Powerful, amazing what a story can do, huh? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I appreciate you you bringing the neuroscience there. I love how you shared it. It's very easy to digest. And one of the things is then. So my next question is then: Is stories real, or uh, because I know you said they're just they're made they're made up in a sense? But is any story real, or is every story just real based on our choice of what we choose or what we keep alive or what we focus on? I mean, how's that work? Yeah, it's
1: it's wild. Uh, we as humans have this death grip on truth and then we have, you know, certain cultural um, constructs that help us have even more of a death grip on truth. And, and really the stories you're carrying aren't true. Um, And and I don't mean this. We we've sort of entered this political post-truth environment. That's, that's been a big deal in our country. And I don't mean this at all in that sense. There are things that are, you know, empirically true. i say in the book, you know, if I smack you in the head with a chair, we're going to both agree that chair exists right. When, when you're done whooping my butt. You know, so there, there are things that they're true, they're real, they exist, but they're, the truth of them is personal to you. And, and that's for a number of reasons. One of them is that we construct our stories through, uh, through an infinitesimally small amount of the data that's available. So, right now, if you can envision this, you're being bombarded while we're talking with 11 million bits of information. Um, and depending on the neuroscience study you read, you can consciously process 40 to 60 of them. Most of them agree around 40. Um, and so you are taking 40 bits of information from the 11 million to construct your story about this moment. So the average dictionary has about a million letters in it. So that's like me throwing 11 dictionaries at you and saying you can pick 40 of them. Of course, you can have duplicates. We do have 26 characters, but you're going to pick 40 letters out of these 11 dictionaries and write a story about this moment, Vic, the, the chance that you and I are going to write that the same story, you know, parsing the data like that is, is functionally zero. That's why we can look at these major events in our world, you know, whether it be COVID or our politics or whatever, and have such radically different views of the exact same thing. Right. And then that's separate from taking in different information. Certainly we all take in different different sources of information. But if you and I were watching the exact same source of information, the, the likelihood of us writing the same story about that is is functionally zero. Um, so you first of all, you're compiling these stories from an incredibly small uh, amount of the available data. And then that whatever data gets through has to pass that filtering system I talked about. And your filtering system is personal to you. Uh, so your filters are different than mine. So the, the bits of information you're going to let through are different than mine. Um, and then you add to that, that we are bringing that information in through our five senses. And we have this sort of love affair with our five senses. And we believe that they're truth, right? Especially sight because humans are such visual animals. Uh, we interact with our world through sight that we're so in love with what we see is real is true. If I see it, it's true. You know, like people prove it to me, show me. Right. But that's not actually the case. What you're seeing is, is a personal virtual reality to you. Um, And there's this guy, Isaac Litsky, that's a quote by him. He says, you know, what what humans see and take in is a personal virtual reality. And the reason for that um, is because your sight is not a direct projection of the world. Your sight is actually bringing it in, filtering it through your emotions, your past experiences, and then presenting an image to your brain that is not what it saw the way a camera would, but A filtered version of of what it saw (laughs) one of the one of the the sort of coolest examples is in the early space program they thought the astronauts would go nuts if they were upside down in zero g so they strapped these goggles on them with lenses that inverted the world made the whole world upside down and they made them wear them day and night couldn't take them off for 30 days and of course some people did go a little batty and trip and hurt themselves and chaos ensued but on day 26 one of the astronauts woke up and the world was right side up again but he was still wearing the goggles right? And so his brain said, well, for the last 32 years, the world's been right side up. So I don't care what's coming in. I know this is what it should look like. And it flipped the image for him. By the end of the 30 days, all of the astronauts had had a similar experience where the world eventually became right side up again. I, I say that it's, it's just a cool, fun story. And I'm a space geek, but I say that because you, you, what you are building these stories from isn't pure empirical truth. It's a filtered personal truth to you. Um, so if you can get to that point, where you you understand that you have compiled these stories through this filtered personal virtual reality of yours, then you are in control. You're the one that wrote it. So if you're living out these crappy stories, it's your fault. You wrote them. you're in charge here. Um, and that that you know depending on on how you feel about the world, that can feel disempowering, or it can be the ultimate empowering moment where you say, well, if I wrote these, if I'm in control, then, why am I living out such crappy stories? Why am I living such crappy stories? You know, why am I writing such crappy stories for myself? I'm going to take control and and write some ones that are equally true. Um, You know, they have to be based on real facts. They're equally true, but they serve me and take me to a better place. And that, that equally true piece, even though I just spent, you know, five minutes telling you none of them are true, they, they do still have to be based in true facts. So, you know, if, if you're making 20 grand a year right now and you say, Uh, I'm going to be a millionaire by the end of the year, right? That's your that's your new mantra. Probably that's not going to happen. Probably that's unlikely to happen, right? But if you say to yourself, I have all the tools I need to become financially successful. Well, now that's that's based in some truth, right? You probably do have the tools you need if you're willing to put in the work to become financially successful. Now, whether that's a millionaire by the end of the year or a millionaire by, by five years from now, your brain, your filter system, your brain can't really argue with I have all the tools necessary to become financially successful. It's really easy for it to say, no way in hell are you going to be a millionaire by the end of the year, right? That, that snarky jerk in the back of your head that tells you you're fat and ugly and never going to get anywhere in life. That's real easy for him or her to say, no way you're going to be a millionaire by the end of the year. But you know, I have all the this, this, this skills and tools I need to become financially successful, that's, that's harder to argue with. So when you're um, evolving these stories, because you're not throwing the story out and writing a new one, you're actually evolving the story from one that doesn't serve you to one that does serve you. When you're making this evolution process, you still have to fill it with equally true facts. Like, you know, what I did, I brought the DNR, I got the bed rail down, I got the mask off my mom's face. All those things were true. I didn't make up or invent things to make that story better. I just picked better bits of information. Um, And then we we can go further. Our 12 million year old monkey brain is actually really um, uniquely programmed to pick the worst bits of information, which is why we sort of um, at rest write such terrible stories for ourselves. So we're bucking our biology and our evolution um, and have to really actively do some things to create new ways to bring in more positive information to compile our stories from. And once you sort of take those next steps, then you at, at resting state become better and better and better at writing better stories for yourself, even when you're doing it subconsciously.
0: So cool. So how then? So my mind's running in a lot of different directions right now, and I can go in so many <laughs> wheels here. But uh, I'll try to uh, I'll go one way here and see how it goes. But one of the things is when I'm hearing this, it's mm-hmm. like, all right. So then my mind goes right to, all right. How do we change that story? Is it just shifting the story? Because you're talking about bits and pieces of information. Is it different perspective of looking at that information? Right. You're sharing like, well, hit you over a chair. The chair exists. I did this. Okay. But then the story afterwards. How do we create stories. Like I like how you said, you know, I have, I have everything I need to be financially successful. I love that. You can't argue with that. Um, Is it, do you have, does the brain need something to hook onto? In other words, does it need some form of evidence to support the story so that um, you can let your ego, your inner critic or whatever we like to call it, um, left, I call it left brain, um, hook onto things. So they can say, okay, yeah, this is, look at, here it is. And then the story starts to get more belief. You get more emotions in there. You start tying all these different things, the reptilian brain and all that good stuff to make that a reality.
1: Yeah. And I think that hook is based in what I was just saying, where, um, you're not writing a new story, you're evolving a story. So if you were to, uh, throw out the story that you have and just sit down and rewrite a new, shiny, beautiful, perfect one, then you would have to like move mountains to get your brain to attach that. You'd have to give so much evidence, so much credence, uh, so much backstory to try to prove to yourself, to your own brain, that that version of the story is true because it's never interacted with that before. That's all brand new information that you're trying to cram That That's the that's the last jacket you're trying to put in when you bust the zipper on your suitcase, right? There's, there's just so much resistance to that. So if you evolve the story uh, and you make it an iterative process, then your brain already has a hold of that. Well, this is, I've, I've had this story. We just changed it a little bit. We just modified it. And so you, there's still some heavy lifting and some work to be done, but much less than if you were to try to just slam a new story in there. So the, the, the process that I use and I teach in the book is, is it's four steps it's called the story evolution process. The pre-work is what we talked about before, which is you, know, you take any, if you want to find a story, you need to rewrite. You take any area of your life uh, that's not working for you, that you're struggling with, you're frustrated with, and you ask yourself, what's my story about this? And you say, is it true? And even if it's true, does it serve me? And most likely if it's an area of your life you're having trouble with, then the answer is you know, it's, it's always not true. And, and most likely, it definitely isn't serving you. So once you've done that pre-work and you've said, well, here's an area in my life I want to, um, you know, upcycle my results in, uh, and here's my story about it, and, and I know it's not true and it's not serving me, then you sit down and you do the actual four-step process, which the first one is to write it down, um, and I, I recommend doing this like longhand, not typing it in a computer, because there's sort of a kinesthetic connection between. Uh, you know, your, your brain and your hand as you're writing out the story that, that seems to help, but because you're, you're taking something that is unconscious and making it conscious, you're taking something that sort of only existed in your mind and making it exist in the world. You can't change the story unless, until you get it out of yourself and see it. So you write it down. uh, And then the second step, you say it out loud. And I recommend people actually video themselves with their cell phone the first time they say it out loud get it zoomed in pretty good so you can see your facial expressions a lot of people are like hell no i'm not doing this you're crazy you sit in a room and talk to my camp my phone you know um but what you'll see if you do that is you'll see on your face the parts of the story that don't work for you you'll see your eyes turn down you'll see your your smile fade you'll see your shoulders slump you'll actually in some cases see yourself wince when you say the bad parts right Uh, Like I said, if you had to jump up on the coffee table at a cocktail party and say, I totally suck at everything, you're probably not going to say that with an ear to ear grin. So if you record yourself and watch it back, you'll see the parts of that story that are not working for you. It's likely that some parts of the story are fine and then some are causing you suffering. So then you just sit down and you mark those out, you know, just put a little tick mark on top of the sections of the story that are causing you pain. And that's what you need to rewrite. And then step three is the actual iterative process of rewriting it. So you don't try to rewrite the story in its entirety. You just take the first bit. So in my case, um, you, you know, uh, in the story of my mom, we didn't, you know, the first thing was we didn't fight for mom or no, it was, uh, I'm, I'm failing you. I'm failing Ann. Right. And so I looked at that piece and, and said, well, I'm, I'm not really failing my brother. I'm not hanging out with him as much because I'm depressed and upset, but I'm not failing him and, and I'm not failing my wife. So I'll take that piece out. And then it was, we didn't fight for mom. And that's when I looked at the part of the day. And so the second time I rewrote the, the sentence, I, I you know, deleted the part about failing people. And I started with that sentence and said, well, I fought for my mom in every way I could. right? And then I still had the, she fought for all five of us every day of her life, you know, um, and we didn't fight for her part. And so I just took each part one at a time. And I did this, and it was probably 10 or 15 lines long. You rewrite one bit of it, and then you say it out loud again. Does it still hurt? You know, Does it light you up? Does it make you feel excited? Does it make you feel happy? You know, Does it make you feel ready to move on? No, then rewrite another part of it. And you just keep doing this until when you rewrite it and then say it out loud, it feels good. It feels light. It feels freeing. It feels true. And once you get there, you're ready to move on to step four, uh, which is where all the work happens. And I often say, it, I think those of us in the personal development or self-help industry are often complicit in letting people like rename and keep their problems, right? Like I've got a bad story. Great. I move on. Well, but you didn't do anything. You didn't fix that story. You know, we tell them it's four easy steps, right? Because, uh, 90 days of hard work is a terrible book cover that does not sell books. Right. So, but step four really, uh, requires work 30 days, minimum 60 to 90 days better. And it's simply telling yourself the new story over and over again. Some of these stories, you know, I'm, I'm about to turn 44, right? Some of these stories I've been carrying since I'm seven years old, you know, if it was one maybe given to me by a parent or a teacher. um, So my brain has that on active recall. It's instant to trigger that story. I've got a clear neural pathway right to that thing. Now I've got this new version of the story um, and it doesn't have all those same associations. So even though I rewrote my story to, uh, you know, I fought for my mom in every way I could while respecting her right to die her way if someone talked about the day my mom died, that old story about not fighting for my mom would rear its ugly head. So I had to sit there and put that story where I read it first thing in the morning at minimum and right before I go to bed, right? And then better if, you know, so you tell yourself at least twice a day, but better if it's an appropriate story that you can put up somewhere, you know, on the mirror, on your computer monitor, you know, tell it to yourself three or four times a day. You do that for a minimum for 30 days, but 60 to 90 days better until you've created a new neural pathway such that whatever issue that is, when you get triggered for that issue, it's only the new story that pops up. So at this point in, in my evolution, it's only that I fought for my mom in every way I could while respecting her right to die her way story that pops up that I didn't fight for mom. I just stood there and watched her die. That one doesn't come up anymore unless I'm actively talking about it like this. And it's not a linear process, so you, you know you may backslide, and something will happen that you didn't expect that triggers the old story. And when that happens, you just go back to step four, tell it to yourself twice a day, and do the work. And then one sort of hack to speed this up is to make this new story part of your lived oral tradition. So um, in my case, I took some trusted friends out to dinner. This is you know before COVID, we could do that sort of thing. You're, you're getting to the point where you can do it again now. So. You know, go out to dinner or drinks and and share with someone that you trust. Hey, I realized I had this really terrible story that was causing me a lot of pain and suffering, and here's the new version of it that I wrote. And you share that with them, and and two things are going to happen. Well, several things are going to happen. One you've made a part of your lived oral tradition. So that kind of um, makes the story more powerful. You've uh, triggered a friend to support you, which actually releases, you know, oxytocin in their brain and creates a stronger bond and actually increases the likelihood of them having positive health c- outcomes in their life um, just by doing that. And then most likely that friend is going to turn around and share with you some of their suffering and their problems, and you're going to support them, which is then going to trigger... And oxytocin release in your brain, which is a happiness-inducing chemical, and and increases all of your sort of happiness and health outcomes over time. So that step really is like a, a, a secret sauce power up to um, to make this go, you know, a lot lot faster.
0: I love this, and then anyone can do this, right? It doesn't take it's just the four steps, simple. I like them, crystal clear, easy. And doing that, you change the story, you, you change your life, and and it changes your. Um, your emotion react, your your emotional tie to the story also.
1: Yeah. And, and you you can, as you get good at this, so you do it the first time and you get that sense of freedom and lightness that comes in, like I said, you get a little addicted to it. And then um, you get better and better. It's like a muscle that you build, this rewriting your story muscle that whenever you're facing challenges or struggles, you sort of instantly ask yourself, what's my story about this? And then as you start to craft your new stories, you get better and better at tying in these sort of um, meaning marker you know um, to the story, so we 're meaning making machines as humans, right like you know like uh, i 've got there 's a rocking chair at my dad 's house that you would pass by and think is just a cruddy, beat up old antique, and for me it 's the chair that my mom rocked all five of her boys to sleep in and, and like two or three of her grandchildren in so uh, and I rock my own kids to sleep in it when I visit my father now, so that chair has a lot of meaning to me. it has no meaning to you, so as you rebuild these new stories, the more meaning you infuse into and attach to it the more powerful and better outcomes you're gonna get out of it, right? So um, fighting for my mom in every way I could, that, that has so much meaning that, that you know, ties in and triggers right into that savior complex, that nobody dies on my watch complex, that sort of male warrior complex, right? Like all, all these sort of cultural stories that we're fed that become a, a real deep entrenched fabric of who we are. If we haven't gotten to the point where we can rewrite those ones yet, we can ascribe new meanings to them to make them work for us um, by connecting our, stor- our new stories to some existing stories uh, that we know that can help give it power and, and move forward. And so we can, you know, our meaning making causes us sort of no end of um, depression, and anxiety and frustration over the course of our lives. But if we take control of that, we can really use it um, to accelerate, uh, you know, making more positive outcomes in our life.
0: And I just love the 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 stuff that you're doing with all this because you know your story, holding that story, that lower emotions that can create um, chaos in the body, which can start to create a breaking down effect, which can lead to disease and other things, uh, just by holding that story. And I've read other books like of great warriors doing great things. I forgot who it was. There was there was a book about a Japanese warrior who fought into the army. I forgot what it was. I apologize. Uh, It was a book I read years ago, but it was talking about how afterwards he fought, he stayed, he lived in the jungle wild and um, survived in this crazy jungle. And then afterwards, um, he, he came out and he saw what Japan became. And it was the story that he kept telling himself that led to massive depression. Or there was a guy, I forget the name who it was, but I know it related to Metallica. And he always compared himself to Metallica's success. And he never fully saw the massive success he had because, again, of the story he kept telling himself. And I think that's why, uh, uh, you know, being able to evolve the story and shift the story, it, it's a game changer for life. And I know you know this already, but just for the listeners to really know this and tap into that.
1: Yeah, and I think that, that comparison piece you just tapped into, like uh, comparison is is uh, the mother of all suffering, right? And it used to be you only compared yourself to your neighbors uh, and, and your close friends, right? Like we evolved as, as monkeys to to live in tribes of say a hundred, right? So the the people that you're interacting with, to dealing with on a regular basis, should be around a hundred. And now social media um, and our huge interconnected world has made it to where you're you're connected to everyone all the time. And so it's just put that um, comparison mechanism on overdrive for people and causes a lot of suffering. And that's one of the reasons why sharing your bad story with a friend um, and then sharing your new story with them is so powerful because it's not, we don't make real human connection by showing these perfect highlight reels of our lives on Facebook. We make real human connection in our, our beautiful as humans and our struggles and our challenges and in sharing those and supporting people through that, right? Humans, there were 15 other hominids running around trying to make more hominids and humans survive, not because we were the biggest and the baddest and the toughest. We survived because we were the scarediest, right? We're good at hearing a a twig break in the woods and thinking that's a saber-toothed tiger better run. Um, And because we could cooperate and help each other. And that's why, you know, our our species, Homo sapiens, became the dominant hominid. And now uh, we have been rolling that back and and putting a digital filter in between that support network um, to the point where there's a lot of neuroscience studies showing, you know, kids, um, are starting to look to their device for emotional support instead of other human beings. So if they have a bad day at school, they're going to get on and do some posts on Facebook and then get some likes and every like is a little hit of dopamine. And so they feel better. And so they turn more to the device and less to other human beings for their emotional support. And that is, that's a real problem. Um, there's a, a, a research study that's been going on for like 75 years or more at Harvard. That's the longest longitudinal study of human happiness ever um, Robert Waldinger, who was like the third or fourth director of this study, did a Ted talk about it. And th- what they found is that, um, at, at, you know, at the end of life, you know, in, in your eighties, um, and in some cases in your nineties, the people who are the happiest, the healthiest, um, and the, and have the least days uh, of pain are the ones that maintain strong, um, you know, interpersonal relationships. In their life, like com- mostly conflict-free, supportive, long-term relationships. So uh, having a spouse or partner right up until the end, having close friends right up until the end, maintain that human connection was a stronger predictor of their physical health outcomes than all of the other data. So in their 50s, they you know took their cholesterol and and uh, you know tested all the things that you would think of for ar- arterial disease and heart disease. And none of those things. You know, correlated as strongly with their positive health outcomes and longevity and happiness in their 80s as did just whether they maintained their important human relationships. So, it's uh, it's really crucial that uh, as a species we start to strip away these digital filters between us, um, especially now that we're getting you know in this last year sort of exacerbated that. But getting back in person with people and creating real meaningful, lasting in-person supportive networks, Um, and especially for men because we we tend to do that um, less effectively the women by the numbers.
0: No, totally. And I love how you brought that point up about connection and interpersonal relationships. As a chiropractor, uh, we always say, you know, we work on the brain. That's what we do. We work on the nervous system. We're always enhancing the communication and, and all that good stuff. And, uh, I came upon that research and understanding that where, um, there's actually something that's even more powerful than a chiropractic adjustment. And that is deep interconnected relationships with others, having a, a community, having family, um, and it family doesn't have to be just blood related, it could be your friends that you consider family. Uh, but they showed that that has the highest marker to help with your health and overall well-being than anything else in the world.
1: Yeah. And, and as men, we, uh, we form friendships, but not um, support networks in the same. So, like, you know, there's mom, you know, women when they become a mother, there's these moms groups where they get together and support each other through the, you know, incredibly difficult transitions of raising kids. And you know, as men, we, we we might go out and have a beer together, or go fishing, or go hiking, or something. But we don't as often build these emotionally supportive networks, and it's starting to, you know, bite us in the backside. For the last three or four years, we've had a declining life expectancy in the U.S., mostly driven by Um, men in their 50s who have lost their way in life, either lost their job, lost their ability to serve their family, struggling with mental illness. And they tend to, by the numbers, resort to drugs and alcohol and either end up in suicide or circling the drain and uh, having an overdose eventually. Um, And so it's really important as men to start digging into these relationships and really supporting each other. So one of the things there was a big realization for me out of my two years of suffering was that everyone around you is suffering i tell people if, if you want a litmus test to tell somebody's suffering just look at their chest if it's rising and falling they're suffering um and until you've been through sort of a, a significant major trauma or suffering event yourself you don't really tap into or understand that um and so now and, you know people reach out to you you know for the first couple of weeks after someone dies in your life and then they move on and you look fine and so to them you've moved on too And so the support that you really need over that first two years pretty much dries up in the first two weeks. And so I kind of insert myself um, in in the situation more aggressively than I used to. So whenever anybody I know loses somebody, I, I reach out to them, I write them a letter, I make some follow-up calls over the next year. I program them in my phone to follow up and just check in and make sure they're okay. For some of them, they'll get real and actually share it with me. And for others, they won't. They'll still act like they're fine. And that's okay. But they at least had somebody say to them, hey, man, are you okay? I'm thinking about you. I know this stuff's hard. If you want to talk about it, tell me. And if you want to just you know, drink, drink beers and, and, and play video games, we can do that too. But if you want to talk about it, you know, I'm here and that's okay. Um, and just opening that space and, and making sure to check in on those people over the course of two years, not two weeks, especially as men, um, that's going to go a long way to starting to develop the types of social support networks that will help turn around these effects where m- men later in life who lose their sense of purpose or direction um, just don't have the support to get back to it and, and find their way. Um, and so that, that sort of taking the time to do that as men is really crucial.
0: I couldn't agree more, and it's something that as men we need to, you know, break away from the old uh, um, uh, programming, if you want to want to call it that, or or cultural belief, you know, um, in, in that way, and, and start to shift gears and, and have that network. And I'm starting to see a movement of that little at a time, where more and more people are coming out, and they're like men groups and things like that, just to help support, which gets me excited because I know. Uh, I, I was I was raised in Italian, Italian Roman Catholic, you know, all this stuff. Men don't show emotions, we, you know, any, <laughs> any sign of any emotions, weakness. And so I had to hide my emotions. I was an emotional person, but I had to hide them in the dark in a sense, or in a room, uh, and then come back out looking strong. And um, over time I learned to break through that. But then unfortunately, people who I grew up with didn't weren't like that. They hide their emotions. They don't want to be open, and it was like, no, 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 I'm not going back there. I want to have real deep relationships. And so sometimes there's also that like, you know, breaking through the mold to see who uh, you need in your life. Like, cause some people may not be wanting to do that. Some people are like, no, I'm happy living this way or living in this realm. And it's like, all right, cool. I'll give you the support you need, but I I need to have people who help support in that level. Cause I know for me, it's huge for my own vitality and my own well being too. Yeah. And I think as,
1: um, as sort of you know, change makers and advocates for mental health and and personal development, um, you know, the more we can construct more of those groups or create more of those spaces that that are men specific, and, and in particular, you know, when people see somebody they think would be the sort of manly man type. So, like you're saying, you know, like I'm the youngest of five Irish and Italian brothers. Um, there wasn't much left in the gene pool by the time it came to me. So they're all over six foot and over 230. And I'm like five, nine and three quarters with my shoes on and under 200, you know. And so uh, especially for me growing up, being tough was uh, was important to to prove that I could fit in, you know, um, and so creating uh, actively creating spaces as someone uh, that someone would look to and think you, you're programmed to be, you know, more of a traditional male. Right. And if that person steps out and creates that space, it really opens it up for people. Uh, you know, one of my best friends who's a raft guide, uh, he's also a little bit of a lunatic. He would on the river all the time, um, sing songs from the little mermaid. So this guy is, is former army. Uh, he's as tough, as a tough guy can be, he's a firefighter, he's a raft guide, um, and then he'd sit there and sing Little Mermaid on the boat, especially when he'd have a boat full of big, you know, burly men. And it was just this—it was just his funny, socially diffusing way to show that I can be both of these things at the same time. There's no, there's no reason I can't be. There's no reason I can't be the toughest guy you know, and also. You know, sing Little Mermaid and cry at emotional movies, or support my friends when they're struggling. I I can be both of these things, and it's okay. I'm both one of you, and I'm this other thing too.
0: I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, you got to have that. You know, one of my uh, one of my employees in my office, when she because I I have a pediatric office. That's like 50% peds is what I see. So I'm always with kids working with them half the time. And one of my employees is always like, I love hearing you talk to kids. You get in this like kid mode and you're like this big kid. And I'm like, you gotta be, I go, this is why I see kids. Cause if I do this with adults, they're going to think I'm weird and it won't come. I go, at least with the the kids, I can be this way. And the parents are like, wow, he really tries to connect with the children. And I'm like, no, that's just who I am. (laughs) That's the other side of me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And we don't really, um, you know, like when we talk about personal stories, there's another whole realm of this, of these cultural stories that we absorb. And it's really insidious. We don't know where they come from, uh, you know, in a lot of ways. And so we, especially in dealing with children or child rearing, have to fight against them. We we lost our family dog recently, and it was in the middle of COVID and lockdowns. And so uh, there was nobody to sit with the kids. So my wife had to go. She wanted to be there. So she had to go put the dog down. And then I was on like FaceTime watching it and, and being with her that way. And of course, I'm bawling, like just sobbing, right? So our, you know, we've had we've had him for 12 years. He's part of the family. And my son, my seven year old, saw that and he said, Well, Dad, it's probably good that you didn't go. And I said, Well, why? He said, Well, you probably would have been embarrassed crying in front of all those people like that. And I said, Well, you know, why? This is I'm losing a friend. This is this is a part of our family who's dying. This is a perfectly appropriate time to be crying. I wouldn't have been embarrassed at all. And I saw his wheels turning and thinking about that, but I've never told him it's not okay to cry. I've never, so like, but you know, at school, maybe he fell and cried, and some other boys, you know, gave him a hard time, or a teacher told him to quit crying, or who knows where that came from. But these ideas of maleness, these ideas that don't serve us, that concept that at seven is just sort of an interesting how that happened with you could be the thing that at 50, you know, causes you to be an addict, right? The, there are direct lines through these sort of um, notions, these toxic male notions that end up in these really bad outcomes. So, uh, you know, it's important in terms of the, the power of story to look at these cultural stories and how they affect our kids and, and give them counterpoints, give them other stories, give them better stories of maleness to look up to, you know, because your, your kids, no matter who you are as a dad, you're God. They look up to you as the coolest person in the world, at least until they're probably 10 or 12 when, when that all starts to shift. But in that time period where they're looking up to you, then you as a counterpoint, you doing something different than what the rest of the world says is man, man or male um, gives them a, a new story, a new, um, you know, new outcome to, to live out and walk out in their lives. And that's, that's really important. That's where all the change will happen for this next generation.
0: I love that. Rich, I can talk to you all day, brother, but uh, all good things eventually have to come to an end. So how can people connect with you, follow you, see what you're up to, get your book, all that good stuff?
1: Yeah. uh, The book's on Amazon. You just search Change Your Story, Change Your Life, Rich Curtis. I think there are one or two other books by that title. So add the Rich Curtis in there. You'll find it. It's a blue and yellow cover. Um, It's in all three formats, including audiobook read by me. Um, if you want to get involved with the, the coaching practice and what we do with personal group coaching and events and all that, you can check that out at richcurtis, scom And then you can check out what we're doing over on Instagram uh at richcurtisguide.
0: Love it, Rich. Thanks for being on. I appreciate you sharing your story, everything you went through, and also uh, the work you're doing. I think it's absolutely amazing. It's a game changer for humanity. And I think it's going to shift the course a little bit and the trajectory of where humanity is going to level up to a whole nother level. So thanks for taking time to share with the, the, the Mindful Experiment uh, audience and everything and uh, keep rocking and rolling, brother. Thanks so much for having me, Vic. Great conversation.